It's podcast time. Hello, Rifa. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome along to Refigure, the weekly podcast by me, Christopher. And me, Rifa. And we're both very cheerful today. Very cheerful. Cheerful in a cheerful way. Uh, before we start, postbag time. We had a lovely message on Twitter from Lawrence, aka EmoWare, in Copenhagen. He says, for 25 minutes I can forget I'm not in Brighton, which is nice, and he absolutely loves the show. And also, Zinzi Amp was very nice and put us in her story this week and said she finally listened. So, yeah, I really appreciate people listening. More downloads, more likes. Thank you very much for listening. We also got a nice one from Simon Timpany. He gave us a nice review. Did he? Oh, cool. Thank you, Simon. He said, I'll tell you what he said, an interesting range of arts and local stuff. Although, I don't know if we do talk a lot about Brighton. But anyway, uh, local stuff covered in a conversational style, polished and informal. That's nice. Well, yeah, it's like generally we're sitting here in our bow ties, aren't we? Quite formal. What's your main thing that you've done this week? I'm going to talk about somebody I've been following that I saw speak at a diversity in tech conference. That was pretty corporate, but this guy came on and he did a really good opening keynote and he was very entertaining and his name's David McQueen and he is a coach and a speaker and he's doing a six part series uh, about diversity on his LinkedIn profile and he you know, like he works with corporates mainly, okay, in tech as well, right? So he has been a TV presenter, he's been a public speaker, he's a motivational coach, he works with uh, big companies and he helps leaders, okay? So the way that he works with diversity and inclusion within the workplace is going in and being on the front line. And he's a black British middle-aged man, okay? He caveated it at the beginning and said this is going to be really strong stuff it's going to be hard hitting right he's not going to pull his punches and i'll just say this is the first one and this is i'm just quoting from the first one so he says inclusion is not a joke there are thousands of people with untapped potential who are missed out on recruitment drives people who can perform better and deliver excellent results when identified this is not about trying to solve it with some bullshit two-day course on unconscious bias delivered to staff who don't care and get on with things the way they are once the course is over. It's much more. D&I, diversity and inclusion, too often is passed off as some other thing, a department, but for it to work, it has to be part of the cultural DNA driven by senior leaders across all units with intent, investment and energy to make it happen. Spearheaded by HR talent leaders in the C-suite, it's like top level people in a company who see both the financial and human impact and he says some strong articles coming on this shortly he knows his staff a lot of the evidence that's out there obviously you can go on these unbiased courses in order to find out the reasons why we count the number of non-white people in the room and POC people in the room people of color in the room we count the number of women in films in management positions in in every aspect of a company but it's about the commitment of the senior leaders to actually implement and commit to that from the ground up through across every level, across every decision-making 
aspect and that's what we keep talking about and I keep continuing to talk about it because it's at the forefront of my mind all the time and especially if you don't live in a, a big city that you feel much more alienated or if you work in an industry where it's traditionally always men that are making the decisions that you're continually almost exhausted at the end of the, each day because you're continuing to assert your position as an expert because you look different to the other people in the room. And today I was talking to someone about science. You know, every level of it has been dominated by men and it will continue to do so until the men themselves in these positions of power get over the shame of it all and the embarrassment of it all or the denial of it all and actually commit to doing something about it instead of just going, oh, well, you know, this is how it's always been. What can people in positions of power do individually? What's Or what should they do? Yeah, so he's got this whole six-part series of, like, talking about it, but it's an ongoing conversation. I think that's the main thing that we have to understand, that it's a slow burn. Work out what it is you want to be doing. Like, you work out where the gaps are and what's you need in your organisation. There was a pair of speakers at this event I went to who were the senior men in the organisation and they went and spoke to the women in the organisation first and tried to find out as much as they could about the ongoing issues within the organisation. And then they went and did a closed session with the men, the senior men. And because they were talking to their peers, they were very open and honest and they collated all this information and it assured them that it was all um, confidential. But they also used it in the presentation to us as diversity and inclusion participants in a conference to show us these men were thinking about whether women are biologically unable to think in a technical way, for example. These sorts of things were what was discussed. And then they devised a specific programme for those people over a period of time and so that's what I think is important is that it's not about being told off it's not about trying to embarrass people because let's face it we've all done it we've all had oh that sound like Michael McIntyre then um <laughs> we all we've all done something where we I felt that shame I felt that where I've like said the wrong thing at the wrong time and there's a thing that's going on where people think it's political correctness it's not political correctness it's compassion and being a decent person to respect others in your workspace. At least, at least in your workspace, if you've got to work with people and get the best out of them, if you're committed to working somewhere, then at least be aware of the issue that you don't have a diverse or people who are different to you within that space. And where can people find out more about, what's this guy's name? He's called David McQueen. I just became a sort of fan of his because he's, British as well and a lot of the stuff that we're looking at is is American and they're obviously well you know they're going for a lot in America um he's got a website davidmcqueen.co.uk I think it is he's on um LinkedIn that's where he's posting this stuff because oh, clearly that's where the people who are his audience are you know not everybody likes LinkedIn it's full of bloody corporates but that's the point This week we also watched Sharp Objects, the HBO... It makes me scared just thinking about it. <laughs> the excellent HBO miniseries, which is based on Gillian Flynn's 
first novel from back in 2006 and it's been made into this excellent miniseries by HBO starring Amy Adams, who I fucking love. She's brilliant. Oh, she was brilliant she's, in the Muppet movie. She was brilliant in the Muppet movie. She's brilliant in Arrival. She's a fantastic actor. Amazing. Oh, yeah. It was created by Martin Oxen, who made Unreal with another creator called Sarah Shapiro. And then they fell out. And there's this big old kind of gossipy behind the scenes story about the TV series Unreal. If you haven't seen Unreal, it's also excellent, or at least the first season is really good. It's a spoof of that TV reality show, The Bachelor. And Unreal is like all the people behind the scenes trying to make it drama. And it's a really bleak. It's quite, actually comes across a bit like the thick of it or something like that, although obviously American. It's not quite as edgy as Armando Iannucci, but it's a fantastic series. Martin Oxen was one of the two co-creators and she got there was something really bad happened and then she fucked off for the second season and then when we watched the second season it isn't nearly as good so she was definitely the reason it was good and then she turned up with this incredible dark detective thriller called Sharp Objects it unfolds really slowly it's got some horror film tropes you haven't told said what the story is oh yeah so it's the story of a damaged journalist who is sent back to the small hick southern town that she grew up in some young girls have gone missing and they think it might be a serial killer. So this journalist is sent back to the town. And because she grew up there, she's got all these demons and skeletons in her closet of, of growing up there. And she grew up the daughter of the woman who runs a town, pretty much, who runs a big pig farm in the town. And the town's main industry is slaughtering pigs. It's got a little bit of a hint of Jane Campion's series Top of the Lake that she made set in New Zealand with Elizabeth Moss, which is also a brilliant series. But anyway, and then it unfolds a little bit like a horror film. It's not quite as gory as a horror film, but it's a really tense, got some metaphysical stuff in there. It's, it's a brilliant unfolding thriller. It was like Hitchcock to me. The costumes and the characters, there's so many brilliant female characters in it as well. All different kinds of southern bells and uh, crazy women and... Anyway, this one, this one is brilliant. And I, I don't like horror stuff. It's not really horror. It's suspenseful. That's what it's like. Yeah, yeah. It's like your heart is in your mouth the whole time. Um, the supernatural element of it is really spooky on a whole different level. It's just brilliant. And for me, these sorts of series, when they're really well shot and the characters are so well formed, it's like one long movie and in fact they sort of pick up you know the beginnings of the scenes just pick up where they left off the last one so you can just watch it like a eight hour movie or more than 16 hour movie we watched it over two nights in two goes and i think we watched the first three quarters of it say in the first night we watched loads in one night and then the next night we left just the last two episodes to find out all what happened i'm still scared I've definitely never read a Gillian Flynn novel. Have you ever read a Gillian Flynn novel? So she wrote Gone Girl and and the original book of this, Sharp Objects, was her first novel. And she's so acclaimed as a novelist, I am quite tempted to actually try and read one. Do it, do it. You read that awful My Absolute Darling, so, you know, you quite like all that nasty stuff. So, can I talk about this new film that came out on Netflix, which was super, super cute and nice. It's the sort of film I like to watch. 
called to all the boys I've loved before. Yeah, it was really cute. Uh, so it's a teen romance directed by Susan Johnson and it's based on a novel by Jenny Han. So this teenage girl, in the past as she's grown up, every time she's had an unrequited love of a boy, she's written a letter to them but not sent it and then put it in a special box and those five letters that she's collected of her five loves sit in this box under her bed as a secret way of kind of... um, That's where she holds her heart, I suppose. For various reasons, long after she stopped loving these boys, all five letters get delivered to all five boys at once. And they're all at her school, or some of them are at her school. And they all react in different ways, and she's totally mortified. And then it unfolds into a sort of um, fake dating plotline where she fake dates one of these boys for various other reasons. It's really gooey and it's really sweet. It's also quite refreshing because uh, the lead character is an Asian American and they never, pretty much never reference it at all or it's not part of the plotline. Even the gay characters are just gay, they're just gay. And they're not a super camp and they're not like being crazy. What I liked about it was the guys were really sensitive as well, crying being all kind of confused. I liked it, I won't spoil the ending, but it doesn't end with a wedding or a prom. Funnily enough... And there's no strip club in it. (laughs) Are you sure there's not a strip club in it? Mm, Definitely not. I thought it was a really good film for pre-teens as well. It's like a film for like 12-year-olds. Like when you were 12 or 10 and you watched The Breakfast Club, it was like, oh, this this is how cool life can be. It's like one of those. And it is, it is quite schmaltzy, but in a different kind of way. It does have something in common with what you said about sharp objects as well, which is that all the characters are really well-rounded. Yeah. And there are a lot of motivations. There's something really sweet about how much compassion the film has for what you might, in other circumstances, call the bad guys in the film. Actually, everyone in it is just trying to get through their day, aren't they? Both of the things we've talked about have got teenagers in it who defy the norm and are much more realistic characters and are, and are real. In fact, both of them reminded me of Brick. Yeah, that's a really good call. Yeah, if you haven't seen Brick, that's a super film to watch. And watch again as well because there's so many bits in it that you miss. Yeah, Brick is the film that Ryan Johnson made and of course he's gone on to be a big cheese in the oh. Star Wars universe. And that stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And of course, he went on to have a big career as well. I mean, he's incredible. If you haven't seen Brick, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in Brick is phenomenal. They've all got different lives going on. They've got double lives going on or more than. And that's the thing about the secret lives of teens. That's what I like. I never stop being 17, that's why. Are you ready to hear the new jingle? Yeah, but I forgot what I'm reading. Did you? Hold on, I'll play the jingle. <laughs> you figure out what you've read this week. What are you reading for? 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 Um, I, I don't think it's my best work. I'm going to open it at random and do a little little reading. Okay, so read for what are you reading for this week? I am reading Maya Angelou's autobiography. Now, it's old school but it's very relevant and it's just a beautifully written book. She's a poet, really, and she just speaks very eloquently. It works as a piece of fiction, 
but it's her life. The first one is called I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And it came out, I think, well, she wrote it in 1969, but it was became really popular in the early 80s. That's the first part. I also got the second one, Gather In My Name. Yeah, so she had a pretty hard life. I'm just going to open it at random. The man's dead words fell like bricks around the auditorium and too many settled in my belly. Constrained by hard-learned manners, I couldn't look behind me, but to my left and right, the proud graduating class of 1940 had dropped their heads. Every girl in my row had found something new to do with her handkerchief. Some folded the tiny squares into love knots, some into triangles, but most were wadding them, then pressing them flat on their yellow laps. It's amazing that you just open that at random and she writes with such incredible poetry. Every word is gold. Like, I've, I've read her whole collection of poems and it just pisses on every other poet there is. She was born to, like, share her words. There's a documentary about her on, uh, I think it's on Netflix, but it's a BBC documentary, I think. It's just fantastic that her life was super rich and she got married a number of times. She she was an actress, she sang. But, um, yeah, I, people quote her a lot, and rightly so. My favourite poem of all time is Still I Rise. Look it up, babe, look it up. <laughs> I've been reading a book by David Gran that's had a lot of attention in the United States. I don't know how it's done here. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's a non-fiction book telling the story of Osage Indians in the 1920s in Oklahoma. They, for the sort of century before, had their reservations gradually squeezed by the American government until they were living on this tiny patch of land, Osage County, which they then were legally given as their own bit of land. And then they struck oil on this land in great numbers and they became the richest people in the world. So these Osage, the Osage nation, were suddenly per capita the richest community in the world. And every government force and just all white people everywhere did absolutely everything possible to relieve the Indians of their wealth. They weren't considered of sound enough mind to manage their own money. So each of the Indians who was getting paid this huge fortune from the oil prospectors had it put in a trust fund managed by a white person. And they weren't allowed to spend it themselves. They had to basically apply to have their own money. That's just the beginning of it. And then what happens, and this is the real subject of the book, they start getting murdered. And one by one, people from across this community are being murdered. And gradually it turns out to be a huge conspiracy just to kill them. And it interestingly coincides with the birth of the FBI, i.e. the birth of a federal national police sort of service in the United States because it's that cusp of period of history where the old ways of the old west and local sheriffs are gradually not being enough for the industrialized modernized United States of the 1920s and Hoover who is at that time in charge of this new organization the new national police force the FBI is trying to modernise everything and is doing like proper police work of investigating and paperwork. Whereas out in the Old West of Oklahoma, many local sheriffs just did it by shooting people. And it's a really fascinating history. It's brilliantly written. It's very evocative. The sheer constant weight 
of the racial injustice and the prejudice throughout is absolutely astounding. And then in the midst of it, you've got some people genuinely, sincerely trying to investigate this mass murder and trying to find out, get to the bottom of it. But at the same time, they're doing it in a community that the white community just doesn't give a shit about killing Indians. They just don't. The newspapers have vilified these rich Indians all the time, sort of describing them as profligate and describing them as not only that they don't deserve their wealth, which can't be taken off them because they managed to just for once get a legal sort of proof that they owned the land, but describing them as like wasting the money and spending it on ridiculous things when they don't. They're not particularly, they are rich, but it's just the visibility of in the 1920s of American Indians being rich is so unheard of that people can't get their heads around it. And it's an extraordinary piece of history and, um, and I love the book. I've not quite finished it yet and it's called Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. It's a great piece of journalism and he's done a huge amount of reporting and dug up loads of detail from this history. The reason America's so fucked up is that the whole of America is an Indian burial ground and it's not even funny. It's a Bill Hicks joke, I think. I remember going to New York and going to the Smithsonian near the ferry that goes to Staten Island and it was only when I saw this map of America and Canada and each state or each area was fully populated with a nation, with a tribe of native people, with their own culture, with their own customs. Along the coast there were people that worked in the sea, there were people inland who worked in the deserts. It was as fully populated as we think of like the continent of Africa, of those all those different states or Europe, full of people with their own customs from north to south. And it just broke my heart when I read that, when I saw it really like that. They just wiped them out. Well, even now, it's been completely whitewashed from history, hasn't it? So people don't think of the American Indian nations now as nations. They think of them as tribes. And they don't understand that there were cities and that there were... And they yes, they lived a different way from... Europeans at the time, but they were still, I mean, just completely sophisticated range yes. of cultures. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. That's a Mexican proverb. And I think that's all we have time for. Do you have anything to plug? Uh, no. On Thursday, 13th of September, not far now, I am hosting a party at the Marlborough Theatre in Brighton to say farewell to my late night radio show Midnight Campfire and I've got a fantastic singer over from Portland, Oregon called Olivia Aubrey and she's going to be playing in a duo. I've also got a, another fantastic singer Elle Morgan coming over from South Sea. She's going to be performing quite a rare in her case because she normally plays with a band but a solo set. And fantastic singer who I think of as local but he doesn't live in Brighton anymore. I think he lives in London. Lewis McHale is going to be doing an opening solo set. So that's three live singer-songwriters. I'll be doing some DJing and some hosting and some general dicking around. It's called Midnight Campfire Live. It's at the Marlborough Theatre on Thursday 13th September, so only a week away. Do come along if you're around. You can find tickets by going to facebook.com slash midnightcampfire. That's facebook.com slash midnightcampfire, and that's my plug. Very good. Thank you. Thanks ever so much for oh, listening. Thanks ever so much for listening. Drop us a, a note or a, do a review, or you can tweet me, 
as well or Chris and tell us how much you like the podcast. Yeah, that'd be lovely. Tell us if you hate it. No, don't tell. I don't want to know if they hate it. All right, okay. We have a Facebook page for the podcast as well, which is facebook.com slash refigurepod. Facebook.com slash refigurepod. We're on Twitter. Instagram. Refigure UK is... Excellent. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.